can't tell if the chemistry is good by looking at it. It wasn't clear yesterday. For the last time, the saltwater pool is a chlorine pool. This is the Talking Pools podcast with pool pros from every region in the country. If it happens in a pool, you'll hear about it here. Everything from tips and hacks to the latest tricks and trends, breaking news. We lay it on the line. We tell it like it is because we think you deserve to know. Everybody and welcome to Testing Thursdays with Wayne. This is Wayne Ivasich. <sighs> today's class, oh boy, today's podcast really is that we're going to be talking about the things that really piss us off, <laughs> that that gets us angry when we when we visit a pool and we're trying to do testing, and that's testing interferences. You know, the last thing you want in this world is is to go to your go go to your pool or spa, do your water test, and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't do what the instructions tell you to do. It doesn't, the colors aren't right. Something's happening. You see a color you've never seen before and you're scratching your head going, what the hmm did I do? Or what the hmm didn't I do? Well, today we're going to go through the common tests that you do or should be doing. Mm-hmm. Another finger wag from dad. Um, oh, just realized my one single hair back there is standing on that. Uh, <laughs> that's what happens when you get older. <sighs> Anyhow, um, so we're going to be going through the common tests that you should be doing and identifying the interferences that happen. Get around them because not every testing system that's out there allows you to do that. Most of your wet chemistry tests where you're adding a, a liquid reagent or a tablet or a powder to something allow you to do that, allow you to make that correction. Some testing systems out there, you can't do it. There's no the mechanism in order to figure out how to get a right answer. It, it just isn't there. So we're going to be talking about primarily interferences that you see when you're doing a wet chemistry test on a particular parameter. And we're going to be going through each one of them. So, so let's go ahead and get started. The, the first one is, is basically... Interferences in in testing can be broken down into two separate categories. Here I go with the fingers again. It's like, hello, how are you? God, not enough coffee this morning. Um, (laughs) uh, It can be broken down into two categories. Yes, that's coffee, not what you think it is. And those two categories are um, normal interferences. These are the ones that we know about. Chemistry has shown us that, yes, this is going to happen if, if X, Y, and Z all occur, you know, the whole domino effect kind of thing. Uh, and then the, there are the ones that are abnormal, the ones that go, what the, you know, did, did I do or didn't do kind of things like I've never seen that color before. I, I've, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years and I've never seen that, that, those kind of situations. So we're, we're going to be talking about each one of those uh, for each parameter. Um, it's, it's, it's common enough that we know they're going to happen has probably happened to you at some point, uh, in, in your testing career. Um, so that if you don't know how to overcome them, 
you don't know what kind of an answer to, to, to give to your customer. You don't know if, if it's right, if the water's in balance, if there's proper sanitation going on, if you got something in the water that's, that's messing up everything. Okay. So, so let's go through each one of them. And so we're going to be talking about, first of all, right off the bat, sanitizer testing, chlorine, bromine, things of that nature. Now, chlorine and bromine are halogens. Uh, and, and for those of you who are going, what, what the hell is a halogen? Is that if you, if you kind of look, go, let's go in our way back machine to high school chemistry and remember the, the chemical element chart. Okay. On the right hand side, there's a column. I think it's group seven, if I remember correctly. And in that group are all of the possible things that could be what's considered a sanitizer. So there's chlorine in that column. There's bromine in that column. There is elemental iodine in that column. Yes, they used to use elemental iodine as a sanitizer back at the beginning of the 20th century. This is not the stuff that mom put on your little cut on the knee when you fell off your bike. That's mercurochrome. That's something completely different. But elemental iodine was considered and is is a, a sanitizer. Not a very good one, not a very effective one, but it's there. Uh, oxygen's in there. Um, there's a whole bunch of, of different things that, that you won't ever see in our industry. So let's just concentrate on chlorine and bromine. So you go to do your chlorine test. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a color matching chlorine test or whether it's a titration and drop test chlorine test. And this also goes for bromine too, is that you add your reagents. And normally when you do a color matching chlorine test or bromine test, you're adding um, a certain number of drops of uh, one reagent and then um, five drops of another reagent. So it's five drops and five drops. And I'm referring to the Taylor kit, of course, and the other kits that, that use a similar um, um, method. Um, so you add your, your five drops of each of those two reagents and you get no color. Nothing happens. Your sample stays clear. Now, you know for a fact you just dumped a whole lot of chlorine in that pool. Why isn't it showing up? Well, it's not showing up because you've bleached out the indicators that are in that test, the, the specifically the DPD number two, because depending upon the range on your testing system, if it's significantly above the high, highest level that you have shown on that system, it's going to bleach out or even partially bleach out. So, for example, and I have to refer to what I know. So let's talk about the Taylor kit. Uh, and no way is this an endorsement, but hey, I worked there for 31 years. That's kind of ingrained, you know. So what that means is that the comparator block that's in your standard Taylor test kit uh, goes from one at the lower end up to a high of 10 parts per million. If you add fill that up with the sample water and you add your five drops of DPD-1 and DPD-2 and it stays clear, one of two things is happening. One, there is no sanitizer in the water at all, no chlorine or bromine. Or two, it is well above 10 parts per million. How much well above? Probably above 14 to 15 parts per million. Uh, and you're going, uh-oh, I overdosed something. How do I figure out how much chlorine is actually in there? Okay. Well, you also might say, instead of a complete bleaching, a partial bleaching, you get an answer that's lower than what you think it should be. That means that your chlorine level is probably somewhere between 10 to 15 parts per million. So how do you correct all this? Well, it's pretty easy. You're going to do a one-to-one -one dilution. 
Now, the instructions in a tailor can have that and tell you how to do it. But a one-to-one dilution is pretty common and pretty easy to do. So what you're going to do is dump out your sample, rinse it out really, 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 really well, and fill up that comparator block or that test cell halfway up. So if, for example, in the tailor kit, it, it asks for a nine milliliter sample size for coin or bromine testing, there's a mark on the side of that comparator block at 4.5 mils. So you're going to fill it up halfway. If your comparator system has 10, you're going to fill it up to 5. If it has 20, it's going to fill it up to 10. And the important thing here is to fill it up halfway. Then the rest of the way up to the, whatever the test instructions tell you that the total amount should be, you're going to add water that has no sanitizer in it. Ideally, this would be things like um, bottled water. Um, actually, ideally, it should be distilled deionized water, but who has that around in their truck or their pocket all day long? But uh, bottled water is, is sufficient. Don't use tap water unless you have no other source because there should be a little bit of chlorine in that drinking water to a degree, which could skew the results of the test a little bit. So you want to be as accurate as you can. So... Uh, you add uh, the rest. You add to the sample tube all the way up to the to the top mark with your non-chlorinated or non-brominated water. Okay, then you do the test exactly as the instructions are written. You add your five drops of DPD number one. You add your five drops of DPD number two. Cap it, invert it a couple times, and look at the color that's developed. Whatever color that's developed, whatever it matches on the comparator system. Multiply that value by two. Now, in English, what that means is if you do this one-to-one dilution test and you match the color standard that's, say, for eight parts per million, that means eight times two. You're really at 16, okay? Now, uh, that's a simple one-to-one dilution. You can do a one-to-three dilution. You can do do a one-to-four dilution whatever your little heart desires or whatever is easiest for you. But one-to-one is usually the way to go. Now, in in the methodology for color matching for chlorine, um, it's good up to about 20 parts per million. And that holds true with uh, the drop test for chlorine and bromine that are out there, the FAS method. That methodology is, is good and accurate and reliable up to about 20 parts per million. Anything over that is completely unreliable, even as a dilution. It, so it's not even not even worth it. Uh, but up to twenty, you're usually pretty good to go. Okay. So high chlorine, high bromine will interfere with a chlorine or bromine test if it's greater than ten parts per million. You're either going to see a complete bleaching of it out or a partial bleaching. And if you have a partial bleaching occur. You correct it using the same method, a one-to-one dilution or whatever you're you're comfortable with. Um, let's move on to the next test. Because high sanitizer values, high chlorine, high bromine, can screw up these tests big time. Let's talk about pH. How many times have you ever, ever done a pH test and it comes out purple? Okay, instead of the normal yellow to red color that you see in a standard pH color matching test. And you're going, what? 
Huh? I don't get that. Well, what that means is that your sanitizer level is so high that it's actually changing the the indicator solution to a completely different indicator. Let me explain that one too, because it quite it came out a little confusing, I think. Phenol red is the indicator that we use to test for pH in a range of 6.8 to 8.4. That's chemistry. You can't get around that. There are well over 50 different pH indicators, depending upon the range that you're shooting for. Those of us who have been around for a long time uh, uh, might have used something called um, chlorophenol red or some other kind of pH that, that covered most of the range. But phenol red just lands perfectly where we wanted to be between 6.8 and 8.4. What happens is, is that that high chlorine or high bromine actually changes the physical characteristics of the indicator. And you get this purple color. <coughs> now, most liquid pH indicators, most, you're going to have to check with the manufacturer that you work with, have an inhibitor already built in that reagent that compensates for high chlorine or bromine readings. Taylor's uh, pH reagents, uh, phenol red reagents, all four of them or five of them, uh, have this inhibitor in there. So that if you do your pH test with a Taylor um, phenol red reagent and it goes purple, that's telling you you're screwed. <laughs> Basically, it's telling you that your PA, yet your sanitizer reading is greater than 15 parts per million, and you've got some problems. Okay, for the other test kit manufacturers out there, uh, you're going to need to check. Okay, um, but see if they have the inhibitor. But I know that Taylor does. I believe Lamont also does too. Now, how do you get around it and get a decent pH reading? It's pretty simple. Okay. Again, referring to the Taylor instructions, you're going to dump your treated sample, rinse it out real well, including the cap, and fill it back up to that top mark of, in this case, it's 44 mLs. Then you're going to take another reagent that's in your test kit. This is reagent number seven. It's the first green cap bottle in a Taylor kit. It's called thiosulfate. Thiosulfate is a halogen neutralizer. What? Okay. And what it will do is remove any excess sanitizer that's in the water so that you can get a decent reading. The kicker is, and this is critically important, I can't emphasize this enough, you're going to only add one drop of reagent number seven of that thiosulfate to your newly collected sample. One drop, period, end of story. The reason is, is that the pH of that particular reagent is 9.6. One drop in that 44 mil sample isn't going to do anything other than remove the high chlorine or high bromine interference. If you add more than one drop, you're actually changing the overall pH of your sample, and you're going to get what we call a false high. And you're going to think you have a higher pH than you really do. So only add one drop of the number seven. After you've added the drop of number seven, then you can go ahead and add your normal five drops of indicator to get the right color sample. Now, if it goes purple again, that means you have a horribly, obscenely high level of sanitizer in the water, and it's probably no sense in wasting reagents. 
uh, to try to get a sample. You probably you, you need to collect a sample, let it sit out in the open air so that the sanitizer dissipates, then give it a few minutes, not probably about a half an hour, and then test the pH. Um, but yeah, a high sanitizer, high chlorine, high bromine is going to really, really muck up uh, a pH test. Now, the next test that that's done um, commonly, we hope commonly, is your total alkalinity test. Now, this test can also be affected by a high sanitizer or a high chlorine or high, high bromine level. And you know this is happening um, by, by this situation. Normally, an alkalinity test goes from green to rest, red, and you're counting the number of drops it takes to do that then multiplying the number of drops by what's called drop equivalents. If your drop equivalence is 10 parts per million per drop, and it took eight drops, eight times 10 is 80. Boom, hello, that's your alkalinity reading. Now, what can happen when your sanitizer level is high, a couple different combinations of things could happen. Your initial color could be green, but then as you're adding the drops of reagent to get that color change, um, it actually goes to yellow, like a urine yellow, like almost the yellow of the shirt I'm wearing from from Talking Pools podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, or it'll go yellow. Sometimes instead of going green at the very beginning, it'll go blue. Sometimes, and then it will go blue to yellow. Um, it, it's just, it's a very confusing color. Sometimes it's teal, that kind of thing. So, so what do you do to correct it? Again, it's pretty, pretty simple. And I'm going to refer to uh, Taylor's um, instructions generally, but it's pretty much the same thing for all of the others. Get a new sample, obviously. Then as part of normal, normal part of the test, very, very beginning, you add a couple drops of that reagent number seven, that thiosulfate. In this case, adding more thiosulfate it's not going to hurt it. So instead of adding the two that the instructions say, double it to four. Double it to four drops of number seven. Not going to change the pH. You're going to get the correct color change from green to red. If it still doesn't happen at four drops, you can add a couple more. Um, that's only in very extreme cases. Normally, the addition of two extra drops of that reagent, that thiosulfate reagent, We'll take care of the problem and we'll remove the interference so you get the normal green to red color change. Yay! Yay, Yay testing. All right, the, the, the next test that, that you should be doing on a somewhat regular basis is uh, calcium hardness testing. Now, you don't have to do calcium hardness tests you know, every week you know, or every day. We'd love you if you did, obviously, but don't need it. Because calcium doesn't change that much. Calcium hardness, unless there's a leak, a lot of splash out, you backwashed a waste a lot, uh, you had to drain the pool, you know, and you got new incoming water, that kind of thing. But you're doing a calcium hardness test, and it's a drop test, very similar to the total alkalinity test. And instead of the colors going from green to red, they're going from red to beautiful sky blue color. Like it was here yesterday in Maryland. Not today, it's raining. Um, but it's pretty, pretty sky blue. What will happen is sometimes is that you'll you'll get that test and you'll do it. 
and your sample goes from normally red to a purple, um, like almost a grape Kool-Aid kind of purple color. Um, and again, you're going, what the, what I do? Well, you didn't do anything. Um, what's happening is that's an indication of the presence of metals in the water, typically copper and iron. Uh, sometimes it could be manganese, uh, but typically copper and iron. How do you get rid of that interference so you can get the normal red to, to pretty sky blue color? Well, you dump your sample. Uh, where have I heard that before? You dump your sample, rinse it out, fill it back up. Now, in this case, it's a little bit different than all of the other corrections to get right colors and things to the other tests. This one's a little different. There are three reagents you use when you test for calcium hardness. First one is a, a buffer. And what a buffer does is raise the pH of the overall sample of water so that you get your normal uh, red to blue color change. The second re reagent you add is the actual indicator. That's what turns the sample red. The third reagent um, in a Taylor kit is reagent number 12. Uh, it's what you're adding the drops of to your sample tube in order to affect that change from red to blue. Well, good old reagent number 12 has in it a product called EDTA, ethylene diamine triaminoethanol. Yay, Wayne said it right. <laughs> so, and, and what EDTA is a metal uh, sequestering product, okay? Now, what do we do when we sequester something? Well, we hide it. And that's what reagent number 12 is doing. So you would take, so in order to get rid of that blue and interference, you got your new sample, take reagent number 12 first. What the hell? Reagent number 12 first, add four to five drops of number 12 to the sample the, right from the get-go. Now it's a clear reagent, it's not gonna do anything if you swirl it around and mix it. And then you go back and do the test exactly like the instructions say, you know, add the number 10, add the number 11. And then when you get your, your red initial starting color, you're gonna add the number 12 reagent again till it goes to that sky blue color to get the correct drop equivalence value. You take the number of drops it took to go from red to blue, and then add to that the number of drops of 12 you added at the very beginning of the test. So if you did all this stuff to try to get rid of the weird purple color, and it took you 15 drops to go from red to sky blue, okay, 15 drops, but you added five drops of number 12 in the beginning to remove that purple interference. Add the five to the 15 and you get 20 drops times your drop equivalence, and that's your answer, okay? Yeah, always remember to add the drops to number 12 you added at the beginning. Now, there is, I'm not even going to call it an interference um, in a calcium harness test. It's more like a, an occurrence. Is that sometimes when you do the test and you've added your, your, your drops of buffer, and uh, you added your, your drops of, of indicator and you've mixed all around and then suddenly you see these little dots appear, little purple looking dots. Uh, sometimes they come out of swirls, but most of, most of the time it looks like little floaties. 
that are in there. Um, don't panic. It's not really an interference. It's more of a reaction. Because you've raised the sample uh, pH of the test itself by adding uh, all those drops of the buffer solution, the higher the pH, the more metals come out of solution. So what you're seeing is something called magnesium hydroxide, MGOH, a forming. Those are the little dots. The good thing is that you do not panic when you see this. It's just a normal chemical reaction. The little dots are just there saying, hi, nice to meet you. That's it. Okay. Doesn't interfere with the test. Keep on adding that number 12 reagent or, or the titrant, whatever system you're using, until it gets to the blue color. So you kind of have to look beyond the dots. Okay. Um, I know you see this a lot with um, uh, pools that have uh, their makeup water from wells, uh, or the, the pool is near um, um, mountainous areas or areas where there's a, a large amount of, of uh, metal deposits in, in, the, in the groundwater. Um, you don't usually see it on city water so much unless for some reason there's the high, high um, copper or iron level in the water. Uh, most municipal systems, you're not going to see that. But it does happen. And, and, and it's, it's common enough that it's absolutely worth mentioning here. Okay. Now the the next test, uh, this is let's go through all of them that 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 you could possibly uh, deal with. If you're if you're dealing with salt systems, SWD saltwater generators, you know you need to maintain a certain level of salt NaCl in the water itself in order for that unit to produce the proper amount of chlorine that's fed back into the water. Depending upon what kind of system you have, you could have, uh, you might need you know, 2,000 parts per million of salt, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. It, it depends. Commonly, it's between 2,700 and 3,000 uh, is what, what most residential systems have. Uh, and it's pretty much true for the larger ones too, but um, around 3,000 is, is, is probably the most common. Well, the good thing is that there are no known interferences in a salt test, uh, a drop test for salt. Um, you're simply getting your sample of water. You're, you're adding um, a small, smaller sample of water. You're adding a drop of what we call chromate indicator to it. And your sample will turn yellow, almost like, like my shirt here. Yep, remember this, talking bulls. Um, sometimes it comes out a little bit milky. But most of the time, it's, it's, it's a nice bright yellow color. And then you add a reagent called silver nitrate. Uh, silver nitrate is also known as invisible ink. Yay. Okay. Also, be careful getting it on your hands <coughs> because it will stain your fingers, but you probably already know this. So you add silver nitrate drop by drop until it goes from that yellow color to a brick red color, an adobe red color. And the changeover is boom. Instantly, it's not a gradual change like you see in some drop tests. It's boom, right in your face kind of change. And then the number of drops times the drop equivalence is your answer in salt. Also notice that silver nitrates in a brown bottle. Okay, this is kind of important. Any liquid reagent from any test kit manufacturer that is in a brown bottle is, makes, makes that reagent be identified as an oxidizer. Okay, which means that 
if left uncapped um, and exposed to air, heat, and light, it's going to go bad and go bad quick. Norm, excuse me. Normally, these reagents are clear in color or lack of color, but they go pink or dark red when they go bad. Other examples of reagents that come in dark brown bottles, DPD number two, silver nitrate. If you do the drop test for uh, chlorine, uh, you've got two reagents in there. One is the actual titrant. That's the reagent you're adding the drops of. The other one is the actual DPD indicator powder. If you notice, although it's not in a brown container because it's not a liquid, but it's in a solid opaque container. Okay, that means that it is also an oxidizer and will, if exposed to air, heat, and light or humidity, will darken and darken over time. Normally, the indicator powder is white or slightly off-white. Uh, being off-white is perfectly normal. But if it starts to go gray and gets black flecks in it and looks ugly, then it's it's not good. It should be white or slightly off-white. And those are the most common reagents that are in the pool industry that that are called oxidizers. There are a number of other reagents in the industrial side of, of, of life um, that are also in solid containers, but that's pretty much it for, for the pool and spa side of life. Um, the next thing you might be doing is metal, metal testing itself, if, if you have the need to, so primarily copper testing or iron or both. Uh, again, the good news, yay, is that um, the only thing that interferes with, say, a copper test is a high level of iron. And the only thing that messes up an iron test is a high level of copper. Hello, you know, they're joined at the hip that way. So how do you correct that? A dilution, a one-to-one -one dilution is fine, and that, that'll take that'll take care of it. That's no problem whatsoever. Uh, if you're testing for phosphates and or nitrates, again, again, yay. Good news is that there's no known interferences. They're, that they're good to go. If you're doing a cyanuric acid test, there's no no interferences because it's a little bit different. A cyanuric acid test is what we call a turbidimetric test. Okay, so you don't really have to worry about it too terribly much. Um, the um, uh, TDS test is normally an electronic test that you don't have to worry about. Um, so, you know, you, nothing really interferes with it. Um, now, those are what we've talked about so far are all chemical interferences, but there are other things that can interfere how you, how you do a test. And one of them is actually lighting, um, natural lighting versus indoor lighting, things like that. These are what we call environmental inter interferences. Now, normally when you're testing and you're going to, to a pool and it's outdoors and you're doing a color matching test, for example, you're going to hold the comparator block eye level and perpendicular to the ground, and you're going to face north. Why north, Wayne? Well, I'll tell you, Wayne. <laughs> Excuse me. Is that um, you don't want to be facing the sun because the sun's presence on your eyes is going to interfere how your eyes interpret color. So what may look like one shade to you really is another shade if you're facing the sun. You want the sun on your shoulders, on your back, preferably on your back. If you're indoors and you're using the lighting that's, that's provided there, particularly if you have to test at night, you got to kind of be careful because standard fluorescent lighting and uh, LEDs will also 
kind of mess up with how your eyes interpret color. Um, the problem is, is that, well, well, the easy fix is to go outside and, and test it. But what if you test it at night? You can't do that. You know, you kind of work with what you got, basically, unless you can afford something called a daylight simulator lamp. And what these do is simulate daylight, duh. Okay, and then you can use the color match that way. Uh, but most budgets don't allow for things like that. So what do you do? Well, again, you work with what you got. You, you, you do your testing in the same place every time in the same unfortunate lighting environment, you know, usually fluorescent lighting, and just work with it that way. You know, you're be consistent in your inconsistency is what I've always said. Um, but at least you're, 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 you're limiting any other interference that might occur by staying in one spot and doing the test in one spot all the time. So you've got, um, um, in uh, chemical testing, you have environmental testing. Now, what about y'all out there that, that um, and I can say y'all because I'm south of the Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> um, what about y'all who do electronic testing? What do you do? Is there anything you need to be aware of? Well, yeah. Uh, with anything electronic, so you're talking photometers, colorimeters, any kind of meters, you know, handheld meters, that kind of thing. There's two, two, here, Mr. Fingers again two very important things that you need to do on a regular basis to make sure that you're getting the right results. The first one is clean the probe. Okay. After a certain time, even just simply placing it in very quickly and getting a reading, it can get debris that you normally wouldn't see <clears throat> on the end of the probe itself. Okay. This is called fouling, F-O-U-L-I-N-G. You remove this these, this particle buildup by simply rinsing it off in distilled water. <clears throat> Excuse me. On a fairly regular basis. The other thing you have to do, have to do. Did I say have to do? No, I didn't. Okay, have to do is make sure that the meter is calibrated on a regular basis. That is critical because if you don't calibrate it. Eventually, it's going to start to go a little bit haywire, okay, and start being off, whether it's higher in readings or lower in readings, things of that nature. This also holds true for those of you that have any kind of inline um, metering systems on your pools for, like, say, pH or sanitizer or ORP or something like that. They also need to be cleaned and calibrated on a regular basis. I can't, I can't emphasize that enough, okay? So got to clean those electronic pieces. Uh, notice that I really haven't said anything much about um, uh, test strips. Uh, test strips have the same interference issues as, say, normal um, um, chemical testing. Uh, the problem is with test strips is that there's no way to correct it. Okay. You have to use a, a, a liquid kit, a liquid test kit, wet chemistry kit in order to, to make sure you get the correct answer. Um, so th these are the little, little interferences that you're going to find commonly in uh, testing on a regular basis. Uh, sometimes they're a pain in the ass, uh, but, you know, if it's a known pain in the ass, you know how to, you know how to take care of it. Um, just don't, I guess the, the, the advice, the best advice I can give you is don't panic. 
and if you get a color that you've never seen before or you don't understand why it's there, um, it didn't make sense, you weren't able to correct it, um, contact the, the manufacturer. There's staff there that will help, that will walk you through the test, possibly identify a problem, suggest to you how to get the right answer, things of that nature. Um, I, I remember always telling people, you know, when they gave, call up and gave me a, a weird scenario or weird color is that if you start asking questions, um, you know, how hot is the water? Um, yeah, no, that's another thing. That's that's one that's probably important. I know I've mentioned it before, but make sure your water testing, your water sample uh, temperature is between 50 and 90 degrees. Anything higher than 90, you're cooking the reagents. So that's technically an interference. Anything less than 50, it can slow down chemical reactions and you don't get an answer you think you're going to get quick enough. Uh, but that's kind of important too. Um, and how do you fix them? Well, you let the water either cool down to below 90 or warm up to, to above 50 and you're good to go. Um, that's pretty much it for today, gang. Um, I've talked enough. You're probably tired of hearing me, <laughs> hearing me talk about this. Um, let's see. If you have any questions uh, that you think I didn't answer or that might come up, um, please feel free to send an email to talkingpools at gmail.com, and they will be forwarded to me, and I will address them on my next podcast. So with that being said, everyone have a fantastic week, and we'll be talking at you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening today. I'm hoping you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Listen, it's been a couple of wacky, crazy, screwed up years from pandemic to Poolmageddon. I just want you to know that we are all in this together. If there's anything that we can do for you, send me an email at talkingpools at gmail.com. Again, that's talkingpools at gmail.com. We're here. This is your podcast. We are the Pool People's Podcast of the Pool People, for the Pool People, by the Pool People's Podcast. This one is about you. So thank you for tuning in and listening. Do me a favor. Click subscribe before you go. That way you don't miss an episode. 